you have to decide, am I really going to do this? Am I going to worship God like this in spirit and in truth? You better, because it's what God saved you for. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series titled The Heart of Worship. So far, we've been focusing on the amazing encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman as we continue our study of biblical worship. You've learned that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Last time, Tom explored what it means to worship in truth. Next, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? What does it look like and what does it require of you? Is every form of worship and its various expressions acceptable to God? Tom explores these questions and more today as he takes a look at the modern forms of worship and what the Bible has to say about them. Let's join Tom to find out more here on The Word Unleashed. We are looking at our Lord's teaching in John chapter 4 and at his conversation with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We've been looking at this passage over the last several weeks Because in these verses, Jesus teaches us how to worship. He opens up for us the heart of worship. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 20 and running through verse 26, Jesus identifies for us here four inviolable laws of true worship. We've learned the first three together. Let me remind you of them. First of all, true worship is not external but must rise from the heart. Notice verse 20. Our fathers, the woman says, worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's trying to tell her that true worship ultimately is not about the externals. It's about what rises from the heart. It's not about where you are, it's about where your heart is. A second truth or law that we learn from this passage is in verse 22, and it's that true worship is not merely emotional, but must result from knowledge. In verse 22, our Lord tells this woman, you, that is you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Worship without knowledge is not true worship at all. Third great law that we learn from this text is that true worship is not intuitive, but must be directed by God's truth. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is, that is, Jesus is saying, with my arrival... The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. We must worship God always in accord with what he has directed in his word. We must worship in truth. We're taking that little phrase our Lord used in spirit and truth apart for the purpose of dissecting its meaning. In practice, it can't be separated. 
Let me remind you that in spirit and truth is a package. You can't truly worship in spirit without worshiping in truth. You can't truly worship in truth without worshiping in spirit. But we're taking them apart just to gain an understanding of the meaning that our Lord has here. And in truth gave us, out of verse 23, our third great principle, true worship is not intuitive but must be directed by God's truth. Now today, we want to look at the fourth inviolable law of worship. I think I said four laws earlier. That's not true. should be five laws. Today, we'll look at the fourth, and Lord willing, we'll look at the fifth in the weeks to come. Now, the fourth great law that we learn from this text is that true worship is not superficial, but must be in spirit. True worship is not superficial, but must be in spirit. Look at verse 24. Our Lord tells this woman, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He uses that phrase again, but obviously the emphasis in this verse is on in spirit, because he begins by identifying that reality about God. Now, as we try to understand this fourth law of worship today, I want us, as we seek to understand it, to ask and answer several questions. The first question that we need to ask and to answer together is what does it mean to worship God in spirit? What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, notice that Jesus' directive here to worship in spirit is predicated on a giant theological assertion that occurs at the beginning of this verse. Jesus says to this woman, God is spirit. Now, the Greek construction of that little phrase, specifically the absence of the Greek definite article, shows that Jesus is using the word spirit here not to refer to the Holy Spirit, but rather to refer to the nature or essence of God's being. God is not a spirit in the sense as if God were a ghost. Instead, Jesus is saying that it is God's essential nature. God is, in his essential nature, spirit. Now, the implications of that are huge. That means that God is divine and not human, because to be human, by definition, is to be body and soul. It means that God is invisible, as opposed to visible. The fact that God is spirit means that God is unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself. It also means that God is a spiritual being versus a physical being. Now, after making this sweeping statement about the nature of God, Jesus immediately applies it for this woman. By the way, let me just stop here and say that this very clearly illustrates for us the importance of doctrine. In this brief encounter at the well, Jesus thought it was important to teach the Samaritan woman profound doctrine about the being of God, about his nature. Why? Because it had direct bearing on how she thought about God and how she carried out her worship. Doctrine matters. It has huge implications in what we do and how we live and how we think. Now, 
Here in verse 24, this is Jesus' point. Because God is an immaterial being, because God is spirit, he is not merely interested in our physical worship. Because he is an immaterial being by nature, he is unimpressed with our physical demonstrations of worship. But he wants us to worship him in spirit. Now, there are some who believe that the reference here is to the Holy Spirit. And it is true that we worship God through the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, says that we who are the truly justified ones worship in the Spirit of God. That's true. The Holy Spirit enables and energizes the worship of every believer without exception. But in John 4, Jesus is not referring to the Holy Spirit. We can see that from the construction. There are a number of clear reasons here in the context. Perhaps the most obvious is the logical connection. Jesus is saying God is by nature spirit, so we must worship with the spiritual part of our nature. So what Jesus is saying here is that each one of us must worship in our own spirit versus merely our bodies. Scripture often contrasts our bodies and our spirits, and that's what Jesus is doing here. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. It's talking about that immaterial part of our being. That's the point that Jesus is making. By the way, notice verse 24 again. In our English text, you see the word must. That translates a Greek word, which literally translated says this, it is necessary. That's how it's translated many times in the New Testament. It is necessary. It is necessary for us to worship God, Jesus says, in spirit, that is, with our spirits, with the immaterial part of our being. To be true worship, it must flow from the immaterial part of you. Now, this is not a new requirement. In fact, God has always demanded this. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You remember this great command, the Shema, that the, the Jewish people still recite to this day, every day. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That great cry of monotheism. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We're told that we must love God not merely, or we must serve God not merely with our bodies by being in the right place at the right time and doing the right things, but our hearts and our souls have to be engaged and They have to be engaged with all our strength, with all our might. And in fact, not only is this how God has always required it, but this is how the faithful have always worshipped. If I were to take the time, I have a number of passages in my notes that I don't even have time to turn to, but let me just cite a couple of them for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we meet Hannah, that godly woman, the mother of Samuel. She says, my heart exults in the Lord. My heart exults who I am. Turn to Psalm 84. I'll show you a couple of psalm passages that uh, make this same point. Psalm 84, 
and verse 2. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh. There it is. He's saying my whole being, the immaterial part of me and my body, sing for joy to the living God. It's to be all of us worshiping God. And that's what the psalmist says that he does. Turn over to Psalm 103. David puts it very clearly in Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David's calling on his own soul, his whole being, the emphasis probably being on the immaterial part of him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He ends the psalm where he began it in verse 22. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Turn over to Psalm 108. This is a fascinating text. Psalm 108, verse 1, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, watch this, I will sing praises even with my soul. True worship and singing doesn't start at your mouth. It starts in the immaterial part of your being. Jesus reiterated the same principle in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, when he repeated that great command from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and called it the great commandment. This is how we are to worship God. It must flow from the immaterial part of our being. So, folks, this is what it means to worship in spirit. It means that you worship God in your own spirit, that is, with your heart. That's what it means. Now, there's a second question that we need to answer this morning, and that is, what does it require of us to worship in spirit? What does it require of us to worship in spirit? Well, in a word, worshiping in spirit requires participation. That's the key word, participation. And it requires the complete participation of your entire being. You see, this Samaritan woman already understood that her body was to be engaged in worship. She already got that. She knew that to worship God, based on their acceptance of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, she knew that she had to be in the right place, she had to bow at the right times, she had to say the right prayers, she had to make the right sacrifices. Now, Jesus tells her that true worship goes beyond that that her soul must be engaged also. Listen to how James Montgomery Boyce put it before his death. He says, true worship occurs only when that part of man, his spirit, which is akin to the divine nature, for God is spirit, actually meets with God and finds itself praising him for his love, wisdom, beauty, truth, holiness, compassion, mercy, grace, power, and all his other attributes. It's when the immaterial part of you responds to the God who is spirit. Superficial, mechanical worship is unacceptable to God. He wants our worship to be the expression of our entire being. Now, I want to fill this out a little bit because I think sometimes we need to go a little deeper to make sure we've got our arms around it. We can further define what our participation, 
the participation that's required of us with four adjectives. Let me just give you these four adjectives that, that help us understand what's required to worship God in spirit. We need to participate, but how? Adjective number one, our participation must be internal. It must be internal. So much of what professes to be worship today is mere formalism or externalism. It emphasizes performance rather than the heart. Going through the motions of worship is a cheap substitute for true biblical worship. And God won't take it. He won't have it. In fact, turn to Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah has a passage that is one of the clearest and most direct to this whole issue. Isaiah 58 Isaiah 58 and verse 3, God has told the prophet to declare to the nations, or to the nation rather, of Israel, that they're wrong. Verse, the end of verse 2 says, they delight in the nearness of God. They had this appearance of true worship, and they don't understand. Verse 3, why have we fasted, and God, you don't pay any attention? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you didn't notice? We've gone without food, and you haven't paid any attention. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire. You pursue what you want, and you drive hard all your workers. You don't even care for your workers. Behold, watch verse 4. You fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast normally, like you do today, to make your voice heard on high. You see what the prophet is saying? He's saying, you're doing all the right things, but your heart isn't engaged. You normally don't do it to make your voice heard on high. Instead, it's all about the external. True worship must engage the heart. Folks, if your mind wanders, it's not worship. This morning, with what we've already done in worship as we have sung, if your mind wasn't engaged, if it wasn't internal, then it wasn't worship. If, as we study the Word of God together, your mind isn't engaged, it's not going on internally, then you're not worshiping. If when we've prayed, your own heart hasn't been crying out to God internally, then you aren't worshiping. Your body's here, but you're not worshiping. It has to be internal. In spirit means that it must be internal. It must be your immaterial part. A second adjective we could use is our, partic our participation must also be authentic. Now, I know that word is being overused today, but it's a good word. Authentic. Listen to Isaiah again in Isaiah 29 verse 13. Listen to the Lord's indictment of his people. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists in tradition learned by rote. You see, tr sincere, authentic worship isn't about tradition learned by rote. It's not about just going through the motions, and it's not about who's watching. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, we see that 
our worship is to be authentic and sincere versus hypocritical versus just for show. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware, Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then he applies the principle, verse 2, so when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Verse 3, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? In order that, here's their purpose, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. Listen, true worship in spirit means not only that something is going on inside, but that what is going on inside is sincere, it's authentic. Stephen Charnock writes in his great work, The Existence and Attributes of God, how can we imagine God can delight in the mere service of the body any more than we can delight in converse with a carcass? Without the heart, it is no worship. It is a stage play and acting a part without being that person really which is acted by us. A hypocrite, in the notion of the word, is a stage player. We may be truly said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. A statue upon a tomb with eyes and hands lifted up offers as good and true a service as that. He's absolutely right. If there's no sincerity, if, if it's not genuine in your heart, if it's not the sincere expression of your heart, then it's not worship. God could get just as good a worship from a statue standing in a cemetery. Now let's think about this for a moment. How often do we allow our worship to disintegrate into appearance? Let me just ask you, have you ever been more expressive in worship because of who's watching you? Have you ever read your Bible, and I don't want a show of hands here, but have you ever read your Bible so that your spouse or your friend sees that you're reading your Bible? Have you ever prayed to impress the people that you're praying with? True worship never happens when we are concerned about anybody but God. It must be authentic and sincere, not hypocritical. Third adjective we could use to help fill this out is our participation must be passionate. Passionate. True worship is never half-hearted. It is enthusiastic, it is fervent, it is earnest, it is animated, it is white-hot, it is wholehearted. In fact, God rebukes people for half-hearted, dispassionate worship. Turn back to Malachi. You see this in his prophecy. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi writes to rebuke a number of sins among the people, and he begins in chapter 1, verse 6, with the priests. And God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? You're not treating me with respect, God says, O priest who despise my name. And they respond, verse 6, what do you mean we're not respecting you, we're, not, we're despising your name? Well, here's how, verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, wait a minute, what do you mean? We're, we're, how have we defiled you? Verse 8, 
when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? You remember there were restrictions on the kind of animal that was to be offered in sacrifice? Well, these people going through the motions, they were offering sacrifices okay, but they didn't want to give their best, the ones without defect, because those could be sold for a higher price. So instead, they just offered God the, the lame and the blind and those that had problems. It's okay, God won't care. That's half-hearted worship. They were going through the motions, but they weren't passionate about offering to God the best that they could. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 13 of his series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will have part 14 for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.